the numbers all go to 11. I'm talking about bands that rock. Led Zeppelin. What about Sabbath? ACDC. Motorhead. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? We're not worthy! We're not worthy! Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. I get up above the ground and raise my head days like this. Think I should be dead. One for Satan, two for me. Let's cheat the devil, it's fun, don't you? Welcome to the Nothing Shocking Podcast. I'm your co-host, Bob Zarrell. I'm alone again this week for the intro. Our guest is Barrett Martin. He's with Mad Seasons, Screaming Trees, uh, the Barrett Martin group. I mean, he's definitely from that grunge era. Was there for the, he was there for the beginning of it. and uh, He's been associated with the Queens of the Stone Age, R.E.M., etc., etc., Walking Papers. Uh, but he's, you know, we talk about that on the show and how he was into a wide variety of music, not just the grunge scene. And it was a very fun interview. We, I've been sitting on this one for a long time because uh, Eric's taking a break. I don't know how long he's taking a break for. He's a little bit burnt out. Uh, so this is the last one we recorded together. And I'm just trying to get my ducks in a row here. I do have a couple more episodes in the can uh, and possibly a, th- a fourth one, uh, you know, on the horizon so you're gonna get three episodes today and this is the first one with barrett martin of mad seasoned and uh before we get to that i want to tell you where you can find us we're at zpnetwork.com or zoicsonline.com the nothing shocking podcast community fan page and there's also the quad cities rock and roll junkies interest group we're on twitter our handle is no shock pod there you can see who's gonna, upcoming guests are going to be and you know, any news I might update on there as well. We are on Libsyn, which means we're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Alexa, Stitcher, all your podcatchers. That's where you can listen to the show. If you could rate and review the show, that would be amazing. If you have guests that you want of, that you want to see on the show, go to our Facebook page or Twitter handle and uh, send us some tweets and uh messages letting us know who you want to see on the show uh uh we are sponsored by ragged records and legends picks and i want to thank the band hong kong sleepover for letting us use all their music on the podcast they do the intro the outro and the bumpers uh and they got a show coming up in macomb december 14th i want to say i'm gonna look it up real quick here while i'm talking to you it's a charity event that they've been i think this is the second annual one uh it's called music for kids uh let me see my internet is not being kind to me of course right when i'm in the middle of the episode it has to do this There it is. It is December 14th, live at the Forum in Macomb, Illinois. It's called Rock and Roll 2 for Rock and Roll for Kids 2. 
the Hong Kong sleepover is going to be there. They have a GoFundMe page if you want to donate, although I do think that's uh, coming near an end, at least if you want to be a sponsor. Uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing this. I don't know who all is playing there besides Hong Kong Sleepover, but it doesn't really matter. They're that good of a band. Uh, so if you get a chance to head over to the Forum in Macomb, Illinois, for a great chance for a chance to see Hong Kong Sleepover, but also for I don't, you know to help the Children's Research Hospital, St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. Uh, great cause, great band can't wait to be there i'm planning on going myself uh without further ado let's turn it over to barrett martin of uh mad season barrett martin group all the bands i've mentioned before great interview uh enjoy Hello, Barrett. Hello. All right. Yeah, you, I am parked and I'm in a good spot, so I'm ready to go. <laughs> Fantastic. I would like to introduce you to, to my co-host, Bob Zerl. Hello. How are you? Hey, Bob. How are you? I'm good. Well, first first of all, I want to thank you for uh, all the correspondence that we've had over the last week or two to get this all set up. So we are really pleased and happy to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm I'm honored to be invited. Well, fantastic. Well, I guess you know to kind of start everything off here is that uh, this past year uh, you've released your second book, The Way of the Zen Cowboy. Can you give us some origins of this novel and how it all came about for you? Yeah. Well, um, it's not really a novel. It's a it's a book of short stories, oh, okay. like nonfiction, you know, stories from my life, but. It's sort of a continuation of my first book, The Singing Earth. And when I wrote that book, I had all these stories about uh, not just, you know, touring in a rock band and doing that whole thing, but also traveling around the world and all the really incredible people and cultures and music that, that I encountered. And so the first book was really about the musical and cultural side. And then I just had all of these stories left over that were... I mean, some of them were very personal and went all the way back to my childhood and up through, you know, the relative present. And I just kind of wanted to write a book that was about uh, growing up as an American man and seeing the world and what it, what it meant to become, you know, at this point, a, a middle-aged adult who's 52 years old. And I just kind of wanted to write stories about that. And, uh, impart some wisdom that I learned from people like my grandfather, who was a World War II veteran, and a couple of mentors that I had that were both, uh, well, they were actually uh, Vietnam-era Special Forces uh, warriors. And, uh, and I worked for them and learned a lot from them about life and, um, and, and living true to the nature of the human soul. And so I, I honor them in this book, you know, through these stories. Some of the stories are mine, some of them are theirs, or there's where we were kind of working together, or they were teaching me things. So um, it's sort of a tribute to the to the older men that uh, that mentored me throughout my life. I guess you know when it comes to taking on the a daunting task of writing a book, 
um, whether it be, like you said, short stories or a novel or what have you. Um, I guess, what kind of uh, research did you do for yourself as far as, I guess, maybe creating that inner writer and starting from, I guess, your, your first writings on? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I always had this this thing, I mean, going all the way back to, like, grade school and, you know, high school where you have to write essays and, you know, those creative, creative writing classes we've all had to take. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of had a thing for writing. I, I like the idea of telling a story. And, and more important than that, I love hearing a good story. I mean, I really love to listen to somebody tell a good story. It's just one of the greatest things in life. And so when I went, after the Screaming Trees broke up and I was kind of not in a rock band anymore, I went back to school and I finished my my undergraduate and my master's degree. And I was actually working on a PhD, but I just haven't finished it yet. And I did so much research about music. And, uh, well, I, I was studying anthropology and musicology simultaneously. So I was studying music and I was studying culture. And so when I wrote my first book, I had hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of writing from, from all this research I had done. But of course, when you're writing a book, you want people to actually read the book and enjoy the book, and you don't want to publish a research book, you know? I mean, unless you're a scientist, I guess. So, so I had to rewrite all of these, uh, all these stories that I had about music around the world and take them from being research papers to being, you know, real storytelling. So... In a lot of ways, that first book was the most difficult because I had to go from academic writing to storytelling writing. And so when I wrote the second book, I kind of I had my voice figured out how I wanted to, you know, how I wanted the reader to hear me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I should actually add that I'm currently recording the audio books of both of those books. So now I'm not only have I written and published them, but now I'm reading them, and then those will come out probably later this year or early next year. How difficult is the audiobook? I mean, you've been in the studio for other things, but it seems like that just, I mean, I listen to them. I'm listening to it right now, the Stephen King book, and it just seems so hard to sit there and read and, you know, with without being boring. You know, that seems really difficult to me. Right. What is it like for you? Uh, well, <clears throat> what, I, what I've learned is that a lot of people, I mean, it's kind of funny, you know, technology has taken us from, you know, the first printing press to, you know, digitally printing books, printing them on demand, ebooks, Kindle, all of that stuff. And then it turns out the most popular thing right now are audiobooks where people just like maybe when they're driving to work or when they get home and they're cooking dinner and they, they want to listen to something, but they don't want to sit there and read and, and the time that it takes to sit and read a book. So audiobooks are now the biggest uh, form of, um, of writing. That, that's what people are, uh, that's what they're listening to rather than sitting there and reading. Um, and so what I do is, I mean, I have a studio in my house and I just kind of stand there and read different uh, chapters. And I read them until I get it just right, you know, because there's this whole thing where you have to speak slow enough that it doesn't sound rushed. But, you know, ultimately you're reading hundreds of pages, so you kind of got to keep the pace going. Um, and we're kind of experimenting a little bit with, with, with my particular audiobooks where we're adding music in there because 
a lot of the stories actually have a soundtrack to go with it, and both books have a have a soundtrack that you can download. So we're we're peppering music in between the stories, so it, it gives the lizard the the listener a kind of um, you know a, a audible soundtrack to go with the storytelling. That's very neat. You know, you're talking about you know other cultures and musical cultures, and you know, a lot of artists when they you know, they see the world, they're really just seeing hotel rooms and arenas and not, or clubs, and they're they're not taking the time to see the world. Was that something that you had to learn, or is that something you did from Jump Street? Well, it's true what they say about being in a rock band. You'll just see a lot of hotel rooms and the insides of tour buses and backstages and truck stops and a whole lot of anything else, unless you get a day off and you happen to be in a place where you can, you know, go see something. But I learned pretty early on, and I think it's probably because I started out on uh, on an independent label and we were touring in a van, and so we had to drive ourselves everywhere that we went. And so we'd be leaving Seattle, and we'd be sort of like, okay, well, we have to get to um, Salt Lake City. That's our first show. So we would you know, go a generally direct route, but maybe we would hit a couple of national parks on the way. Um, and anytime we had a day off and we could route ourselves to where we could go see, you know, like a great historic landmark or, or go visit some cool little town that we heard about, we would do that. So um, I started that way. And then when I was in bigger bands like Screaming Trees and a couple other bands that I played with where we were in a tour bus and there wasn't a lot of time off, um, then I would always go out of my way to kind of make a little trip at the end of the tour. Uh, but really what happened was, um, I, I always did kind of have that travel bug. And so when I started traveling and going to South America, West Africa and, uh, Australia, New Zealand, um, the Amazon rainforest, I started doing these trips to learn about music and to learn about people. And I, I, that's really the honest truth. I, I didn't have any agenda. I wasn't even going there to, um, like, work or record music. I was just going there to take a trip and, you know, see something. Um, it just, it, that travel bug really bit me. And I realized really how small the world is, but in, how incredibly diverse it is, too. I mean, I mean, on the one hand, the world is gigantic. You know, there's just so, so many different cultures and different uh, forms of music and different forms of spiritual expression. But on the other hand, you know, when you see it from that kind of global perspective, you realize how, how really connected and very small everything is. Right. I kind of wanted to change gears on you just for a little bit here. I know this past year you've also released uh, your first double LP, Songs from the Firebird. Um, can you uh, give us a little bit more about uh, this double LP? Is there a story behind it? Yes. Um, well, it's funny. As I was writing the second book, The Way of the Zen Cowboy, I was also composing music. I, I mean, I'm always writing music. It's sort of, I've, I've got a little method where, you know, not necessarily every day, but, you know, every few days I'm working on a new song idea and I make little demos. And then when I have enough good ones and I think I'm ready to make an album, then I get my my band together and I call my engineer and we meet in the studio and we start working. And so it takes a long time to write a book. Um, but I 
for whatever reason, I kind of had this schedule going where I was writing at night and during the day I was recording and, and the, the stories for the book and the songs for the album were sort of developing at the same time. And I realized that they were kind of influencing each other because ultimately it's coming out of the same mind. And so I, I, I had the idea that maybe the songs were actually kind of the soundtrack for the book and the stories of the book were kind of inspiring the themes of the songs. Although I'm, I'm not a lyricist, so I didn't, I didn't write words for the songs. They're instrumental, but the song titles kind of allude to these stories. So when I was completing both of them, which was about at the same time, I started to pepper the stories with the song titles, kind of hiding them in there in like, little uh, little sentences and little phrases so that the person reading the book would go, oh, there's that, I recognize that, that's the name of that song. And so then that would be the soundtrack that goes with that story. So, I mean, I mean it was a major effort. I was, I worked on this, it was a couple of years of uh, just kind of constant writing, rewriting, doing demos, uh, recording basic tracks, recording overdubs, listening to it, you know, just kind of letting the, letting all the flavors marry together. Um, because I sort of believe that if you're going to do any kind of creative work, you should do it incredibly thoroughly and to the best of your ability, and you shouldn't rush it. It's just, it's going to get done when it's done. Um, and so it finally came out in, uh, I, I guess it was May. So it's just been out for a few months now at this point. As far as the end product, you know, when you are creating an, an album and such for this double album, when it's done, when the product is actually done, um, you know, how satisfied are you with the end product? And when you listen back to it, do you ever have those moments of, uh, if I could go back and change that, I would? Or, or are you just not like that at all? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny with uh, first editions, there's always mistakes in every book ever published, even right. by major publishers. There's always like a little grammatical or punctuation mistake somewhere. And so I went back, I'm actually in the process of doing it right now because I'm recording the audio part of it, is I find little like turns of a phrase or a little, you know, grammatical error. I actually, in both books, I made um, little uh, numerical errors about things. Like I, I said some a year and I got the year totally wrong by about 200 years, <laughs> but it was, it was kind of an innocent mistake because like, depending on how you look at the history, it's either this year or it's the other year. And I decided to opt for the other year. And so like, I made that change and, and, um, and, and I, I got a, a quote slightly wrong, you know, I mean, I'm pretty thorough about this stuff because I mean, a, at one point, I was actually a music professor, and you have to be real careful that you make sure you really get everything exactly right. But, you, I mean, this is life. You can't get everything exactly right. You're going to make mistakes. There's going to be errors. Um, but as far as, like, you know, the musical statements and the stories themselves, I mean, I totally believe in them and stand behind them. I think you just have to look at it like, well, it's it's a piece of art. It represents a certain period of time in my life as a musician and as a writer and it, it that's what it is and the hope is that i just get better at it you know like like any artist would say that that they just want to get better at what they're doing and and in order to get there you have to create a product 
a piece of art, a piece of music, a book, a film, and you have to put it out to the world. And then you learn so much from the mistakes that you make. That, that's actually how you evolve, is from the mistakes. You, you've said that you're not a lyricist, um, but you, with you writing books now, do, do you ever see yourself in the future challenging yourself to become a lyricist when it comes to you know, making new albums and, and, and new music? Um, well, <laughs> I think the funny side of that is that, I mean, a long time ago when we were working on a Screaming Trees record, I helped Mark Lanigan with a couple lyrics just because he asked me, you know, what, what would rhyme with this? And I just came up with a couple little things. That's about the extent of my lyric writing. Um, but I can really, you know, like if I'm at a dinner party or somebody's barbecue, which I was this last weekend, um, somebody asks me something, I'll start telling a story and I can just sort of, you know, really spin a yarn. And for some reason, it's easy for me to do that. But great songwriters are truly, they're poets, you know, and a great poet gets to the point pretty quick. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like that that thing about country music, three chords and the truth. You know, that's why those songs are so good and so catchy is because whoever writes the lyrics knows that they have to tell the story in about three verses, not much more than that. And they have to be very brief, but yet highly uh, poetic. And um, that's that's just not the form that I'm best at. I'm pretty good at a short story, but... But uh, poems, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's switch gears on you again. Um, was it 2017? Uh, you won a Latin Grammy. Uh, and maybe That's right. A lot of our listeners maybe are not aware of that. Can you kind of elaborate? Well, it was a total shock, uh, but I was really honored by the whole thing. Um, I played on a lot of records for other people that were, you know, really big records like big rock bands and, and uh, records that were um, very successful, but I, but I wasn't in the band. You know, I was just like a side man, you know, playing drums, playing percussion. Um, but in the, the case of this record that won the Latin Grammy, I was asked to go to Brazil and not only play drums and percussion and all the stuff I usually do, but actually produce the album. And it's an artist named Nando Hayes, who is actually an incredible poet. He, um, he writes and sings in the Portuguese language, and Portuguese is an incredible language for poetry. It's really, really beautiful, because they have words for things that we don't have in the English language. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've worked with Nando since uh, 1999 or 2000. I can't remember exactly when we first started working together. So I've been to Brazil many times. And Nando has come to Seattle to record. And what I did is I, I did the basic tracks with his band in Brazil, in Sao Paulo and, and Rio de Janeiro at a couple different studios. And then I brought the hard drive back to Seattle and I got people like Mike McCready of Pearl Jam to play a rip and guitar solo on one song. And I got Peter Buck from R.E.M. to play some acoustic guitar because he's one of the greatest acoustic guitar players in the world. I got... Uh, some incredible jazz musicians to do uh, play horns and an incredible string arranger from Seattle to do some string quartet stuff. And so the record was really like half Brazilian, half Seattle. And it came out in Brazil and, you know, it had a couple of big hits on the radio, but you'd never hear it in the United States unless you're a Brazilian artist who is familiar with Brazilian music. 
and uh, we submitted it to the to the uh, to the Latin Grammys, which um, uh, was kind of a complicated process, but we just went ahead and sent it in, filled out the paperwork and all that, and then one day I got a phone call that we got nominated, and then a couple months later, it won. It won the the best best rock album in uh, the Portuguese language. So it's like kind of the best Brazilian rock album. And and believe it or not, Brazil has some incredible rock bands. You know, you, you wouldn't hear them up here in the United States because it's in Portuguese, and unless it's in English, most people don't even care about it. But but they can play, and they, they write really, really good songs. So when you win the Latin Grammy, do you get invited to perform down in South America or where have you? Um these songs or, or this album or how, how does it all work after you win something at that high a level? What, what is the next step for you? Well, the Latin Grammys are actually held in Las Vegas uh, because the Latin Grammy, the entity itself is in uh, Miami. I mean, it's, it's an American mm-hmm. organization, but it covers all of, uh, you know, Central and South America and actually, any, I mean, you can be an American band, but, but the language has to be sung in either Spanish or Portuguese. Mm-hmm. And um, so they had the this, this ceremony in Las Vegas, but, and I've been to the Latin Grammys. In fact, I'd been to the one in 2016. I went, and uh, the Latin Grammys are awesome, man. They, they bring some incredible bands, and it's all in Spanish, maybe a little bit of Portuguese here and there, but it's, for the most part, it's in Spanish. And it's this huge production. Like, it's just visually really pretty amazing. So I went to the one in 2016 with my wife, but we couldn't go to the one in 2017 because of our travel schedule. And so uh, we did not perform, and I got my Grammy in a FedEx box on the doorstep. That's how I got it. It just I got a knock on the door, and I got handed this big FedEx box, and I opened it up, and there was my Grammy. So when you win a Grammy, you get this cool trophy, and where do you what do you do? Where do you put it at? I mean, so I mean, you want people to see it, right? So, what 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 is the next step? Where do you display it? Well, I mean, I'm proud of winning a Grammy. I'm not one of those people that doesn't think it it's you know an important thing. I mean, I I didn't get into doing music to to win Grammys, right? I got into music because I love music. I love to write songs. I love to you know, record, I love to perform. And if you win a Grammy, that's just like a little icing on the cake. So, uh, it's just, it's in my office on a bookshelf. It's, it's not, you know, my wife was like, well, it's really cool, but maybe it shouldn't be in the living room. <laughs> and I, was like, I was like, okay, I, right. Cause you know, we have a lot of art. So let's just like, you know, the art will be in the living room and I'll put the Grammy in my office and it's just like on a little bookshelf and I'm proud of it, but you know, and anybody who comes over can see it. It's not like I'm hiding it or anything, but. Cool. How cool is that? <laughs> yeah, man. I, I mean, I will say it's, it's, it's pretty damn cool to, to have a Grammy. They're, they're really, they're really heavy. They're heavier than you think they are. They weigh a lot because wow. they're solid. And they use real wood, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, I, the foundation, I think, is uh, kind of a porcelain, and, and the Grammy part is like solid uh, brass or bronze. Oh, or okay. wow. gotcha. Back to South America, you, know, you mentioned there being a bunch of great bands there, but a lot of the U.S. bands that go there, like they're all treated like they're the Beatles there. What does it 
what's different about that audience than the U.S. audience? Well, I've I've only performed in Brazil, and I and I toured all over Brazil with Nando Hayes when I went down there a couple of years ago. I, I played uh, a bunch of shows. He he has his own drummer, but I just kind of went down as a guest and uh, and played played shows with him. And what's pretty incredible about Brazilian audiences, and I, I think this is generally true for you know most of South America, is that the audience members know the words to every song and they sing along with the band. So there were a lot of shows where, and he plays pretty big shows. I mean, there are several thousand people in the audience. And there were shows where the audience was louder than the band was amplified on stage. Wow. So we'd be playing the song, and the audience immediately, you know, they cheer, they totally know the song, and then they sing the lyrics. And sometimes the singer doesn't just, like, steps back from the microphone and the audience sings the song. So it's a really beautiful thing to experience, and you realize that music means a lot to those people. Like, it's really in their hearts. Um, I mean, not that we don't have that in the United States, but I've never seen it in the United States like I've seen it in South America. It's a very different phenomenon. Um, I think it's because, um, in general, in, in the Latin American countries, they revere their songwriters and their poets they're, they're, because they're seen as the, the voices of the people. And so their words and their poems are really sacred. And I think that some American artists have that, that same stature, people like Bruce Springsteen and Beyonce, people like that, that have really, really, you know, huge followings and they know the lyrics to every song. Um, but, um, but it is a different phenomenon in South America. I wanted to ask you um, about the Barrett Martin group. Uh, you know, it's a diverse group of uh, musicians. Can you tell us about more about how you selected the artists to to join this group? Because um, it's really an eclectic uh, group of uh, artists that you play with in this, the Barrett Martin group. Yeah. Well, it, the band has been going since 2004 and what i do is um i mean it's a revolving cast of players i mean i sort of have my main people that i i really try to get them every time i can but you know they have their own careers They, they play a lot of them have their own uh some of them have jazz groups some of them are um leading sort of like rock bands or or they play in other rock bands but I got pretty lucky on the new album because I got the best jazz musicians in Seattle and I got my favorite rock musicians like Kim Thiel of Soundgarden, Peter Buck of R.E.M., uh, Wayne Horvitz, who is, um, you may not have heard of him, but he's a like a jazz legend who has done not just jazz, but really cool experimental and electronic music. Um, and then all the guy, all the other jazz guys uh, in Seattle. And when I'm putting a band together, I, I, I know the sound I want to get depending on, on the type of album I'm going to make or depending on the song. And so I just kind of pick the best guys that are going to bring out that song. And what I found is that I, I have a really good intuition about people and I can put together musicians that are, uh, maybe from totally different backgrounds and different musical, uh, influences but they'll somehow they'll have this amazing chemistry 
So, um, you know, Kim File of Soundgarden, I mean, Soundgarden is one of my favorite bands of all time. And um, I even got to audition for Soundgarden at one point, which is sort of like a, a little private story of like me getting to play with Soundgarden. And uh, it was really incredible to play Soundgarden songs, you know, to be the drummer playing Soundgarden songs. And so I, and I've, I've been friends with those guys since the beginning, you know, going back to the, you know, very early 1990s. And, um, and I've always been friends with Kim. And, and Kim came to see us play just a, a little uh, jazz club in Seattle, and he loved it. And, and I said, well, would you like to come play on a song? And he was like, absolutely. So he came down and totally shredded a solo on one of the songs. And um, that, it just worked magically. There was no, you know, the, I think it's also part of the Seattle thing. Like, we don't separate great musicians as being, well, he's a jazz musician, or he's a rock musician, or he's heavy metal, or he's electronic. It's like, no, if you're a great musician, you're just a great musician. You understand music, and you have your instrument that you express yourself through. And so in, in, a, in a studio situation where there's just love and respect, then people just kind of shine. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'll say as a producer, that's also my philosophy. If I'm producing somebody else's record and we're putting a band together, I just look for the best players that will help that artist realize, you know, the sound that they hear in their head. I will, I will find the musicians and we'll create a, a, just kind of a beautiful and positive atmosphere in the studio and people just shine and have a good time. It's sort of like that, that saying by the, the great music producer, Jim Dickinson, he, he just said, fun sticks to tape. <laughs> it is. <clears throat> so, man, if you can just create a good time and fun and good feelings in the studio, it comes through in the music, man. You can just, you can feel it. Mm-hmm. You do bring up a good point about that Seattle sound. Like, if you look at the big four, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, and Soundgarden, like, none of them sound alike. <laughs> but they got lumped together. I know. <laughs> which, but we've talked to a lot of people that are were kind of on the other end of there and that they were, came up in the 80s. They were just about to break big in 89, 90, and then the grunge movement came and you kind of derailed their career. Uh, <laughs> is Was there... Uh, I, I mean, I've read things where it was like, well, like Chris Cornell saying something like, we don't want, you know, we didn't want to be Bon Jovi. That was our goal. Was there a competition thing back then? Or was it just everybody's doing their own thing and they just happened to take over the world? Well, okay, let me just say something about Bon Jovi because I love John Bon Jovi and I'll tell you why. <laughs> I think that guy is so cool and awesome uh, just because he, you know, he wrote, songs that he wanted to perform and he had an awesome band and he's an incredible man and human being. He's, he's incredibly generous and kind and whether or not you like his music, um, I just, I, I really like the person known as John Bon Jovi. Also, he was a Screaming Trees fan and he asked the Screaming Trees to open for John Bon, jo- oh, for, awesome. for bon Jovi. And uh, we, we actually were going to do it, but we couldn't do it because of our schedule so I never really thought that there was too much of the, I mean, yes, there, there, there is a separation between bands of the eighties and bands of the nineties, of course. But, um, I, I didn't see so much difference as I saw common ground. I mean, I mean, we all had long hair. We all had, you know, 
electric guitars and we wrote rock songs. How those songs are produced is just the thing that made the difference between the 80s and the 90s. But but the grunge thing is kind of a weird thing because you're right, the, those big four bands all sound totally different. They could have all been from different cities mm-hmm. right. and and that would have made sense too. And, and if you had other bands into that mix, like Screaming Trees, Mud Honey, Tad, you know, that mm-hmm. whole roster of sub-pop bands, I mean, yeah, there, there's a common thing with distorted guitars and maybe more drop-D tuning than, you know, than other bands, but but grunge is a broad label that is kind of hard to define, you know? Because right. you can't really say it's just distorted guitars because every rock band had distorted guitars. <laughs> and you can't say it's just screaming vocals because every rock vocalist screams every now and then. It almost had more to do with the way people dress. Right, I was just going like to say that. that was more the definition of grunge than, than the sound. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm probably too close to it to even really be able to <laughs> define it, but it's, I mean, it's, it's sort of indefinable. Well, no, I'm glad you did say that. I mean, I wasn't asking, specifically pointing out Bon Jovi, because, I mean, I love Bon Jovi, and I, I love that on classic rock now you can hear Bon Jovi, then Soundgarden, then Metallica, yeah. then Rolling Stones. You know, they're all together now, and I think that's... Uh, it it would have been cool if it could have coexisted at the time, but at the same time, those bands were kind of burning out as well. But yeah, I sure, got- but, but that's a good point. Classic rock, you know, after a while, you know, twenty years, I suppose, uh, the best songs and the best bands are still going to get played, and right. that would include people like ACDC and Bon Jovi, right, <clears throat> and Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and Neil Young and the Who and the Rolling Stones. I mean, it's all classic. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Yeah, so here's the thing. We're running out of time. I got one more question for you. Um, but we, I have so many questions for you. Um, would you ever consider coming back on so we could do like a part two with you? Is that possible sometime down the road, maybe this winter or something? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, you, Fantastic. Absolutely. You, you have great questions. You, they're, they're good questions, very easy to answer, and I, I love talking with you. So absolutely. Oh, thank you. Okay, so it would not be who of me to ask you a mad season question. Is sure. it, yeah. Okay. So you know, above when when it first came out, and I believe '94, I was doing my undergrad. Um, it was so different than what anything else that was coming out from that scene, um, and it was a diverse sound. It was more of a fusion esque type album of sorts. And I know that you guys back in 2014 did the 20 20th year anniversary, um, I believe, with Duff McKagan. Uh, and I know I've read all kinds of internet clickbait about what was going to happen with that band if, you know, obviously the, the deaths did not take place. Uh, was it more of a, in your eyes, was Mad Season more of a project to you or was it becoming the priority? How was that working out for you back in the day? Well, Mad Season, I think the reason why that band was so powerful, and, I, and I'll kind of make my answer be like, the first version of Mad Season, and then the the sort of tribute thing we did with Chris Cornell uh, in the in the first part of Mad Season when when Mike McCready called me and Lane and Baker and the four of us got together to write those songs. Uh, it was just a beautiful um, expression of brotherhood and real love between us because 
because, uh, you know, we'd all come up together. I mean, Baker came from Chicago, actually, from where you guys are. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and, and he'd played in a lot of the Chicago blues bands. But we were all heavily influenced by the blues. I mean, you can hear that in Alice in Chains. You can hear it in Mike McCready's guitar That's playing, sure. totally. And, um, and as a drummer, I was absolutely influenced by that. And I went on to do a lot of work in the Mississippi Delta with old blues guys. So Mad Season had this uh, very earthy, organic, bluesy quality to it. And, and I've said in interviews in the past, I, I just kind of say it was the heaviest blues band to ever come out of Seattle. Like, that's what it was. It was a blues band that was expressing this thing that we had all been through. You know, we were so young. We were only, you know, I think I was only 25 or 26. Uh, Mike and I are exactly the same, or Lane and I are exactly the same age, and, and McCready's like one year older. So we'd all been through this intense thing with Seattle music. You know, we'd we'd seen all the drug abuse, uh, you know, the just, I, I, I don't know how to say it, except that it was just like, just like living life to the absolute fullest so fast and so quickly, but then, you know, seeing the... Um, the ramifications of that, you know, which were things like the death of Kurt Cobain and a lot of other people that you have never heard of uh, because they weren't famous and they didn't make the headlines, but they also died of drug overdoses and, uh, and, and how, how quickly young people can destroy their lives if they're not careful. And so we made that record and Lane channeled something from the great beyond. And I, I don't know how he did it except that, that guy was an incredible talent and a poet uh, to, you know, to, to the highest degree. And he was able to tell these stories and write this poetry and put it to music, that, the music that me and Mike and Baker were writing. And he, um, he just pulled it together, and it, it just became this electric, magical thing. But that being said, it was always a side project because we all knew Lane was going to go back to Alice in Chains, Mike's going to go back to Pearl Jam, and I was going to go back to the Screaming Trees, and Baker went on to play with some really cool bands on his own. So, and then, you know, as we know, ultimately came the death of Baker and then the death, the death of Lane. So when we did the reunion with Chris Cornell, we were celebrating the album. Uh, we brought Mark Lanigan to you know, sing those B-sides that had never been finished. Mm-hmm. And and he wrote his lyrics as a tribute to Lane. And uh, that show at the the one that we did in, in uh, 2000, I, I think it was actually the beginning of 2015. I think it was January of 2015. That show was just about as incredible as the one we did at the Moore Theater in 1995, the Live at the Moore Theater. Mm-hmm. Um because Chris Cornell also knew that story and, and he knew Lane and he had been through this with um, Andrew Wood from Mother Love Bone. Mm-hmm. So there was this real power in the room. Uh, and Duff McKagan is an old friend of mine and, you know, and that was my call. I was like, Duff's got to be the bass player. And, and Duff, you know, stepped right into it and was perfect. And, and we, um, I, I felt like we really honored the memories of Lane and Andrew Wood, and Kurt Cobain, and everybody else that left this world too soon. Um, and I feel like that's what that band was about. It's about acknowledgement and respect, and uh, guys that were really young and learned a lot of wisdom the hard way. 
That is a fantastic story. Wow. I wasn't expecting that. Fantastic. Um, well, we're kind of out of our allotted time. Like I said, uh, how would you feel if I sent you an email, maybe uh, late fall, early winter, something like that, so we can set something like a Barrett Martin Part 2? Because we have so many questions to ask you, and we don't want to be redundant. We don't want to ask you questions that you've a- answered a million times. We want to be kind of creative and, you know, to ask you more questions about screaming trees and skin yard and things like that. Sure. Absolutely, man. I, I, I'll be, I'll totally be around this winter. I'm just going to be in my studio working on a couple projects and, uh, I'll be happy to talk again. Oh, fantastic. Good questions. I'll, well, I'll look forward to it. Well, thank you so much. Well, before we let you go, is there anything that you would like to plug or promote? I don't know. I mean, we kind of talked about my, we talked about my book and my album, and um, I don't. <laughs> to be honest, I'm not real good at self promotion. So <laughs> I'll just, you know, I, I like to, I like to tell a good story. So uh, think up some good questions for the next time, and um, and I promise I'll I'll uh, I'll come back with some good stories. Oh, fantastic! Well, this is how it's going to work. Uh, we have about four episodes ahead of yours, so we're looking at about four to five weeks to release um, to release this episode. And when we do, I will send you the link um, an email, and then maybe then we can maybe start kind of talking about maybe setting up a, a second episode with you. How about that? That'd be great. Hey. So when you when you have the podcast link set up, send email it to me, and I'll post it on the Mad Season and the Screaming Trees. And of course, my own social, you know, like Facebook and all that stuff. I'll I'll put it out, put it out into the world. Oh, thank you awesome. so much. Yeah, and we will definitely do that. That's fantastic. So this is what will happen. I will uh, contact you in about four to five weeks, and we'll give you the link, and then uh, we'll c- correspond for something later on this winter. That sounds great. Hey, Barrett, thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. Uh, and and who? Tell me your partner's name one more time. It's Bob and Eric. Oh, Bob and Eric, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no problem. All right, Bob and Eric, thank you. All right, take care. Thank Have you. a good night. Good night. Okay, guys, see ya. Bye-bye. Bye.